Hello, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast about books, beauty, and music. So make yourself a cup of tea, sit down, and let's begin. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Perhaps one of the most human experiences is to stand under a night sky and marvel at the twinkling diamonds that are the galaxies spread out before us. One of my favorite things about going back to Colorado, where I'm from, is that there's very little light pollution when you get up into the mountains. So I love to drive up the country roads near where I used to live at the edge of the National Forest and get out and lay on my back in the middle of a field and gaze at the stars. With no light pollution, the sky looks positively dusted with stars. We all seem to crave that feeling that gazing at the heavens gives us, a feeling both incredibly small but also embedded in this beauty that stretches out over us every single day even though we can't see it in the sunlight. Last week, we talked with Dr. Michael Ward about medieval cosmology, particularly in the Narnia books. In medieval cosmology, and mostly in our understanding of the stars before Copernicus, people saw the Earth as the center of the universe, and there being seven heavens stretched out above us, all with this immense meaning, with angels in certain spheres, with each sphere of the planets meaning something to us. But when Copernicus came around and Galileo, we began to understand that we were not the center of the universe. We began to understand that we were orbiting around the sun. And indeed that the sun wasn't the center of everything in cosmology, but that it was one of many beautiful stars in the heavens. Now, many people have associated this with something that we might call disenchantment. Michael talked about this last week. It's the sense that we went from this world in which we understood ourselves to be in this very ordered scheme where we could understand each layer of heaven, where earth was the center, and where the cosmos almost seemed small, to this reality where we felt like we were in the midst of an immense blackness of outer space. I think James K. Smith says it really well when, in his book How Not to Be Secular, he describes this shift as one where we moved from a cosmos to a universe, from an ordered, layered, hierarchical, shepherded place to an infinite, cavernous, anonymous space. And with all of this, there's this sense that we've become disenchanted, that the world seems less charged with meaning, less directed towards a particular purpose. The stars are no longer heavenly hosts, but great balls of gas in the cavernous beyond. And this new way of looking doesn't necessarily preclude religious belief, but it makes the natural world fundamentally impersonal, non-disclosive, not something that we should wonder and gaze and worship over. In his collection of essays that were once university lectures, C.S. Lewis calls this the discarded image, this way of, of seeing and experiencing the world and of understanding humanity's place in the vastness of the universe, discarded, leaving us, he thought, to feel kind of lonely and purposeless, to look at the heavens not as populated with beauty, with friends, and with glory, but as kind of a great outer space, a great loneliness, a great darkness. So today I want to ask this question. Do our modern understandings, as much as we have them, of outer space, of the cosmos, truly doom us to understand the stars as not having any wonder or purpose or meaning? Did the Copernican revolution truly lead us to have to, almost by necessity, live in a disenchanted world? And what I want to argue today is that we do not live in a disenchanted world outer space, or the cosmos, as I would rather call it, did not become somewhere that was less wondrous, less filled with mystery, less indicative of a creator, simply because we found out a bit more about its actual physical attributes. Indeed, I think if we press into it, what we know about the cosmos, about the universes beyond us, can actually lead us to a place of wonder. It's not the universe that has become disenchanted. It is our own view of it. 
So if we're going to recapture an enchantment of the universe, we need sometimes to gather tools in art to help us see with fresh eyes. Works of art that help us to see the stars, the heavens, the cosmos as something wondrous, glorious, and perhaps even something with purpose woven into all of the mystery. So today, as per usual, we will explore this topic through the lens of visual, musical, and literary art. First, we will start with our visual example by comparing the medieval cosmologies, as they were often depicted in paintings, uh, with the modern images that we have from the Hubble telescopes. And I hope that as we look at these, we will see that certainly being able to peer into outer space has not shown us a, a world, a cosmos that is any less wondrous than the images that we see in the medieval cosmos, even if they are different. Then we'll move on to our literary example, where we will be carrying on in the tradition of C.S. Lewis again. We'll be looking at his space trilogy, or as he would rather have it called, his cosmos trilogy, and looking at the ways in which Lewis attempted to kind of reimagine the medieval cosmology with our current understandings of outer space in his delightful and intensely meaningful trilogy, the Cosmos or the Ransom Trilogy. And then finally, we'll be looking at music and music that will help us reimagine the music of the spheres. First with the iconic movements by Gustav Holst and his planets and the ways in which he applied his mythical knowledge to uh, his current understandings of the heavens. And then we'll look at the project by Sufian Stevens called The Planetarium. I hope this episode leaves you with a sense of wonder that you will remember that we do not live in a disenchanted world, but that often our eyes become disenchanted, unable to see the glory and beauty around us. And I also hope that it will drive you outside this evening to go gaze at the dancing starry hosts. And before I dive into this week's podcast, I want to issue a huge thank you, first of all, to the Anselm Society, who's an arts organization in, in the Rocky Mountains, who are supporting a relationship between artists and the church and trying to create a, a renaissance of the Christian imagination. And I also want to thank all of you who support me on Patreon, either $2 or $10 a month. You all have made it possible for me to be able to continue recording this podcast and to actually be able to focus on my PhD. I couldn't do this podcast without you, but honestly, neither could I be able to be at the place I am in my PhD without your generous help. And I hope that you will go over to Patreon today to look for some fun new rewards. I always love your comments, and I'm so thankful for each and every one of you. Also, if you enjoy today's podcast, please don't forget to go give it a rating and a review on iTunes. That helps it pop up into other people's feeds um, if they like similar podcasts. And also, I would ask you to just share this with one person that you think would enjoy this episode. And without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode on the Enchanted Heavens. start this week just by kind of reviewing what really this shift that I'm talking about was. What the shift between the medieval cosmology to um, our modern understanding of the cosmos, that's the word we will use for it. And actually, I think that reminding us that we'll use the word cosmos is a helpful kind of understanding for what changed with the Copernican Revolution. So when we talk about the cosmos, that has this sense of the order of uh, the material world of the beauty, of the createdness of it. But usually when we talk about the heavens or the stars, we talk about space. And space has, with all of it, this, this connotation of emptiness. And that was absolutely opposite to how the medievals and really most people prior to the Copernican Revolution would have seen the cosmos, how they would have seen the night sky. They didn't see great expanses of thousands and millions of light years. They saw an ordered, beautiful, 
kind of world that could be very easily divided up, that meant something, and that had a definable influence on the world below. And to explain this to you, I'm just going to read a little section um, on medieval cosmology from the luminarium.org, uh, which is an encyclopedia on cosmology. And I'm reading this because I could blabber on about it forever, but I think this will give you kind of a more concise description of it. So they write that medieval cosmology was centered around the concept of a Ptolemaic universe, uh, named after the astronomer Ptolemy. And this was a geocentric or Earth-centric model. So Earth was the motionless center of the universe, with the rest of the universe revolving around it in spheres. So this is a very important thing. Imagine the Earth at the center and then everything else are concentric circles around it. Ptolemy's work was based on Aristotle's idea of an ordered universe, divided into sublunary, or earthly region, which was changeable and corruptible, and the heavenly region, which was the immutable and perfect. Aristotle pointed to um, that the heavens contained 55 spheres, with the prime mover, or the prima mobile, or the first mover, giving motion to all the spheres within it. So it's kind of this picture of us in the middle, and then there's all these spheres rotating around like wheels, and the prime mover or the first movable is the one that kind of sets all the other ones spinning. Centermost in this cosmology was the Earth. The sublunary sphere, sphere was compromised of four elements, Earth, water, fire, and air. If you've ever watched uh, the Avatar The Last Airbender, this is sounding familiar. Uh, you can know they they took it from Aristotle, and Aristotle took it from ancient the ancient world. Next followed the spheres of the seven planets, and we talked about that last week. So the seven planets included Sun and Moon, and then we had Mercury, Venus, Jupiter, and then I always confuse which ones are ancient with which ones are new, uh, Mars and Saturn. And these were considered to be the seven heavens. Now, this is where it would be useful to go onto my show notes, because what I'm saying may sound very confusing, but then when you look at it in an image, and there's many beautiful images um, from, particularly from the medieval era, you can kind of go, oh, I see what's going on. So in these images, you'll often have the Earth at the center, and then you'll see these seven beautiful, brightly colored spheres around the Earth. And these were each meant to represent kind of one of the spheres of the seven heavens. So the outermost in the scheme was the prime mover, sometimes divided into three spheres called the crystalline heaven, the first movable, and the empyrean, or the highest heaven. So really, in, in the medieval mind, this is all very kind of ordered it's very uh, categorized and you can kind of march through it. And this was used not only in a scientific sense, but also in a lot of literature. So if you've ever read Dante's Divine Comedy, as he is moving towards heaven, he's actually moving through the seven spheres. He's moving through the seven heavens. And something else that's important in this too is that there's this distinction between the earthly realm and then moving into the heavenly realms. And the earthly realm, as it says, is supposed to be this changeable place that's marked by death and decay, where everything, we're always um, somewhere between procreation and, and growing and dying. So there's always change here. But in the medieval world, they'd look up and they thought, well, there's tons of change on earth, but the stars are incredibly orderly and they always do the same thing and we can count on them. So that must be this picture of we are down here, we are in the earthly realm that's shaped by decay and change, whereas the heavens are the eternal, the fixed, and the divine. So originally, because this comes from Aristotle in that, that time period, this had to do with many of the Greek gods, which Michael talked about last week, Dr. Ward talked about last week. So you have Jupiter is the king planet. You have Venus is the planet of life and of sex and of, of life giving. They had to do with the different gods. But then in the Christian world, they still thought this was the view of the universe because it was to some extent kind of their scientific understanding of it. They thought, well, this is perfect because Aristotle talked about a prime mover. And you know who's the prime mover? God. So this was this beautiful image of of creation, and they felt very kind of planted in it, and it felt like the stars were kind of the visible reality of God's immovable, continuous, ordered work, even as we on the earthly realm kind of dwelt in, in the insecurity and the change and the strangeness and the ambiguity of life. So this is the moment when I would say go look at my show notes and see all of the very lovely and uh, depictions of this 
from the medieval era. I particularly like the ones in which you see the earth at the center, the seven colorful, they're really vivid colors uh, for medieval paint. And then Christ, the Pantocrator, the ruler of all creation, sitting at the top in the seventh heaven in the heavenly realms as the first mover, watching over the order and the beauty of it all. And there's one other thing that I should mention, which is the idea of the music of the spheres. And that was that medievals imagined themselves, as I said, as living in the fallen place, the earthly realm where there was death and decay, but there was also silence. And they believed that in the outward spheres where all the heavens were, there was this music and the music was the thing that kept the heavens turning. And the music was kind of this picture of the worship of God. And this was thrown throughout the cosmos. And there was this real sense of sorrow that we could not hear the music of the spheres simply because we lived in the earthbound, deathbound sphere of earth. There was a hope that if you could only uh, transcend outside this realm, you would hear the song of all creation praising the first mover, the king of the universe. So I want you to put yourself into the shoes of a medieval person who for all of their lives had seen themselves as looking up toward not just a figurative heaven, but a literal heaven where if they could climb through the skies, they could somehow reach through the earthly mess into the heavenly realms where everything was beautiful and permanent and uh, where Christ lay above all the sparkling stars. So I want you to imagine going from that, where that image was as firm in your mind as perhaps your understanding of gravity or of how to climb a mountain might be. Imagine going from that to being told that actually we are not the center of the universe and perhaps that there are many other universes. This, if it were truly established in your mind, would begin to bring up a whole bunch of questions for you. You might begin to ask, well, then where is heaven? Where is God? Where is Jesus' body? If the heavens are not ruled and populated by spiritual entities, then what are the heavens? What are all the stars? How, what can we make of them? So this was a pretty, it really was a pretty disorienting thing to begin to reckon with as we began to have a different understanding of our, our place in the cosmos. And again, if you want to have more reading on this, I would check out The Discarded Image by C.S. Lewis. He does a really good job of tracing the ways in which this shift um, made its way into literature, but also how it kind of created this sense of panic, of loneliness, and of emptiness. So I guess that leads us here. We now know that we, as the Earth, are not the center of the universe. We have had our teenage revelation that the whole of the cosmos does not revolve around us. But does this drain the sky of its wonder? Is there only loneliness and light years when we gaze out at the immense beauty of the heavens? Are we doomed forever to speak of space, of emptiness, and of silence, and not of heavens, of order, and the music of the spheres? And to answer this, I want to actually show you real images of space captured by the Hubble telescope. Uh, but before I say that, I want to tell you a little bit about something quite funny that I did before I started my PhD. So before I started my PhD, I knew that I would be about to be immersed in so much writing and reading that I wouldn't have much space for pleasure reads or for random things. So I thought, what's something that I would want to read that I won't have time for? And um, being the weirdo that I am, I settled on physics. So I read about a 400-page book called The Fabric of the Cosmos by um, a scientist called Brian Greene, by a physicist. And when I read it, I think that I actually, at some level, kind of expected to have it take some of the sparkle out of the world for me. I imagined that when I saw the workings, or when I was told about the workings of the universe, it would begin to see kind of like a machine and it would not seem very wondrous or marvelous. And I thought that reading that book might kind of be the equivalent, the scientific equivalent of kind of spotting a Disneyland worker behind the scenes in one of the rides. It kind of takes away from the enchantment. But I cannot explain to you how far from that my actual experience was. Now, I should say that I think I probably only retained about 20% of the book when I read it. But the main thing that I took away from reading this physics book was that everything is so much more complex, more ordered, more inexplicable, more connected than we can imagine. 
in the physical world. The author of this book uh, is not a religious, is not a Christian, is not of any other faith, but it was interesting to me how many times he would say, he would note how impossible it seems that we are where we are, that things are as ordered as they are, both on a macro and a micro level. I thought it was really interesting that he would choose cosmos rather than universe or space. And I think that it indicates that sense of wonder and of placemaking and of meaning that is still inherent in the medieval vision, even as he's writing from a thoroughly modern and scientific understanding of our world now. He writes in it that cosmology is among the oldest subjects to captivate our species, and it's no wonder. We are storytellers, and what could be more grand than the story of creation? I just thought it was so shocking that Again, even this agnostic, non-religious person would speak of the story. First of all, there's a sense of meaning, of order, and of beauty that he naturally attributes to the natural world the more he studies it. And that he would speak of creation, even though he doesn't believe in a creator necessarily. And it's something I've heard someone say once before that a little science will make you an atheist and a lot of science will make you a believer. And I think that there is some truth in that. Something else I love uh, is that he proposes, uh, he is a proponent of the string theory, which is the theory that the world at the subatomic level, so even smaller than atoms, is made up of tiny corresponding vibrating strings. And to a certain extent, this would mean that everything in the physical universe is, is, is vibrating in its audio, its, its, its sound, which is to say that it is music to some extent, that our world is made up of corresponding building, uh, vibrating little violin strings, if you want to imagine it that way. Now, I am not a scientist, and I don't have anything very critical to be able to add to that. But I will say that that image, that this, on a scientific, on a physical level, we could imagine the world was made up of these tiny vibrating images, made me think that maybe the medievals weren't so wrong. Maybe to some extent we do literally live in a world that is made up of music. Maybe there really is a music to the spheres. So that endowed me with this sense of complete and utter awe at the physical workings of the universe. It made me realize the more you press into the beauty of the universe, you're, you're not likely to find a completely explicable, mechanistic understanding of the universe. Reading that book actually led me to a place of humility. It put me in a posture of wonder and of awe, both in a sense of how much I couldn't know, how small I was, how seemingly insignificant I was in the, in the sense, in the grand scheme of the rest of the universe, but also a sense of awe at the intricacy the inexplicability, the correspondence, the connectedness that uh, runs its way all the way through creation. So in a sense for me, actually reading a book of science had the effect of re-enchanting my imagination. I realized that though we may speak of the modern cosmos as something that's disenchanted, that's not true. Our world is more full of mystery and enchantment than you could possibly imagine. The world has not become disenchanted, we have. And perhaps to really um, understand the extent of that enchantment, one need only look to the Hubble Space Telescope. And I'm including links to this, which have a hundred of the images that the Hubble T Space Telescope, which has been in orbit since 1990, capturing images of all the cosmos. If you go look at this, there's a hundred of the best images um, that we've captured of outer space or of the cosmos. I dare you to look at those and think, wow, yeah, the universe really is disenchanted and uninteresting. Perhaps our response to seeing the vast beauty of the heavens needn't be, I'm in a dark and cavernous void. Perhaps it could be, and indeed it seems natural for it to be, the words of the psalmist. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? In a sense, I almost feel as though our current understandings, as much as they can be called understandings because there's so much we don't know, for me, there is almost a greater enchantment, a greater acknowledgement of the immensity, of the vastness, of our lack of ability to control or predict the beauty of the universe 
than maybe even the medieval cosmic understanding had. I think it's actually a real shame that we have let this narrative develop that the old view was enchanted and ordered and interesting and mysterious, and the new understanding of the cosmos is mechanistic and um, unmysterious and vacuous and lonely. For which reason I think that sometimes we need tools of reimagination. And I think that simply going and looking at these images on, on the Hubble telescope will re-enchant you. But perhaps we also need other artistic imaginings. For which reason I will move on to my next example which is the Cosmos Trilogy by C.S. Lewis. Now, the thing that is odd is that after you hear Dr. Ward's proposal about the seven heavens and Narnia, you begin to start seeing the cosmos, the medieval cosmos, in all of Lewis's works. And this is because for Lewis, it was kind of a personal thing. The outer space and the way it was presented by kind of the early moon landings and all those things kind of disturbed him. And he thought, maybe we really do live in a great vacuous outer space. And so something that he felt kind of compelled to do was that he didn't want to deny what discoveries we have had in the modern world and how we have understood um, new and interesting things about the cosmos. But he did want to keep us from, from thinking of outer space as something that was vacuous and meaningless and void. Um, and it's interesting because even before we were at a place where we get these images that you would see when you look at the Hubble Space Telescopes, which of course are beautiful and colorful and do present this this picture of outer space that's not just vacuous and void and dark. Lewis already had this inclination that that was true. And we've already explored how he did that in the Narnia series, but one of his perhaps less known series that is every bit as uh, delightful in some ways is what is commonly called as the Space Trilogy. Now, it really shouldn't be called the Space Trilogy. I think it was called that probably because of the publishers, because Lewis would have wanted it to be called the Cosmic Trilogy. And that's because it is a it is a science fiction, as you would say. So if you're a science fiction lover and you have yet to discover this, I am so happy to introduce you to it. And it's science fiction that takes place largely in outer space. But Lewis objected to the phrase space because it implied all of this kind of emptiness and and silence, which he didn't think necessarily had to go along with our current understanding of the heavens. He thought that we could imagine the night sky as beautiful and, and that by actually articulating it as space, as darkness, as emptiness, we were shaping the way that we encountered it and understood it, uh, not actually describing a physical reality. So he would have called it the Cosmic Trilogy, but usually we just settle upon the compromise of calling it the Ransom Trilogy, which is the name of one of the main characters. So I, I'm not going to actually give that much of the story away to you, except to say that over the course of uh, the three books, they visit two places uh, in outer space to discover other civilizations. Now, you have to remember that it is science fiction, so of course we know that there aren't actually, in, as far as we know, uh, any people on Mars. We don't have any Martians, alas and alack, or on Venus. But he uses this as this really kind of fun way to explore both our modern understandings of the cosmos with his kind of mythological knowledge of the literary tradition that we work from. So I, I actually don't want to get too much into the plot because that's not the main point I want to make, but you should go read them because they're wonderful, interesting. And they're in a very different mode than some of Lewis's other writings. So it's not like just a transcription of the Narnia tone into science fiction. It feels very science fiction-y and a little bit harder, a little more philosophical, a little bit more male. I don't know if that makes sense, but it does feel that way to me. Um, but the section that I'm going to read you right now is come at the point where, and this is giving away a bit of the plot, but it comes pretty soon. One of the characters has been kidnapped onto a, um, a spacecraft. Is that the word I want? Yes. Well, either way, he's been kidnapped and he's on a spaceship. That's the word I want. Uh, in outer space. And this is all rather strange. And in this passage, he goes and he finally peers behind the blinds and uh, of this spaceship. And the thing that he's been struck by is he imagines the outer space, as we call it, will be dark and empty and fearful. But he notices that there's these, these blinds, these metal things drawn over the windows of the spaceship. And the, in between them, bits and chinks of light come in. And this is kind of um, surprising to him. And the thing that I want you to notice in this is notice how Lewis is trying to kind of let the medieval cosmology, the wonder and order and beauty and sound of it, even the singing of the spheres, 
meet and kiss with the modern understanding of the heavens. So let me read you this passage. Steel shutters were drawn across all but a chink of the glass, and that chink was covered with blinds of some heavy and dark material, but still it was too bright to look at. I always thought space was dark and cold, he marked vaguely. Have you forgotten the sun, said Weston contemptuously. There was an endless night on one side of the ship and an endless day on the other. Each was marvelous, and he moved from one to the other at his will, delighted. In the nights when he could, which he could create by turning the handle of the door, he lay for hours in contemplations of the skylight. The earth's disk was nowhere to be seen. The stars, thick as daisies on an unkept lawn, reigned perpetually with no cloud, no moon, no sunrise to dispute their sway. There were planets of unbelievable majesty and constellations to dream of. There were celestial sapphires, rubies, emeralds, and pinpricks of burning gold. Far out on the left of the picture hung a comet, tiny and remote, and between all and behind all, far more empathetic and palpable than it showed on earth, the undimensioned enigmatic blackness. The lights trembled. They seemed to grow brighter as he looked. Stretched naked on his bed, a second Dana, he found it by night more difficult to believe in old astrology. Almost, he felt, wholly imagined the sweet influence pouring over, even stabbing into his surrendered body. All was silence, but for the irregular tinkling noises. He knew now that these were made by the drum of steel, of meteorite small drifting particles of world stuff that smote continually on their hollow drum of steel, and he guessed that any moment they might meet some large enough to make meteorites of the ship and all. But he could not fear. He now felt that Weston had justly called him little-minded in that moment of his first panic. The adventure was too high and its circumstance too solemn for any motion save a severe delight. So this passage is beautiful and is worth being savored and enjoyed for many reasons. But one of the things I find the most wonderful about it is that it was written in 1938. That was long before any telescope had been sent into orbit. And yet Lewis somehow manages through his own kind of prophetic imagination to see and to describe what you would see if you went and looked at the, at the Hubble telescopes. I love the part where he talks about the stars being immense as daisies on an uncut lawn. And the bit where he talks about all the different jewels and gems. And he gives this sense of being in a place that's populated, that is thick with stuff. It is not the great space that we imagine of darkness, of loneliness, of of the outer space. It reminds me, when people call it outer space, it reminds me of the parable where Jesus says that they'll be cast into the outer darkness. That's kind of what outer space sounds like to me. But Lewis gives us this sense of being in an immense, populated, sparkling, soaked universe far before he had any real evidence to be able to know that that actually is what the universe looks like when you look at it through these telescopes, like like the Hubble. And the other thing I love about it is that it is referencing, with its title, Out of the Silent Planet, it's referencing that sense of our fallen planet being hidden from the music of the spheres. And what I think that Lewis does brilliantly is he helps us move past the idea that simply because we do not believe in a Earth-centric model of the cosmos anymore, that there is therefore no reason for wonder or joy or delight or worship because of the greatness of the cosmos. He manages to kind of begin to draw on those literary resources, draw on the mythological resources as he imagines um, the modern cosmos as we understand it. And I think it's wonderful also that he, he says that Ransom, who of course is the main character, that he, in outer space, begins to think that maybe the old cosmologies were in some sense, in some greater sense, true. And I think that this is actually a really good point, which is that maybe in some sense, the way that we describe the heavens is not so much about the precise nature of, of what they are, because in many ways we are still rather stymied by that but rather we're describing them in terms of what we are in terms to them. And when we look at the vastness of the heavens, it is right perhaps to place ourselves in terms that are more mythological than merely material, 
because it represents this great mystery beyond ourselves. And in that sense, the only thing that kind of suits us would be able to be to draw on these literary traditions that give us words adequate for the mystery of the heavens. So I love looking at Lewis doing this, that he naturally um, both draws on the literary tradition that he loved and cherished and felt was a great loss as we move to this language of outer space, of outer darkness, and of silence. And then he blends the literary tradition with the modern understanding of the heavens. Which leads me to our final and musical example. It's our kind of final point five, because I'm going to end with of course, my BFF, Sufjan Stevens. But another artist who, around the same time as Lewis, about 20 years before, also sought to blend or to begin to kind of create an evolution of our modern understanding with our more mythological associations of the heavens was Gustav Holst with his composition, The Planets. Now, to give you a little background on Holst, he was a British composer. He lived from 1874 to 1934. He was a really skilled musician, but this is really the only piece that got to be as um, popular as anything else he did. This was, this was the most popular piece, and so he was mostly known for being a music teacher. He became really close friends with Rayfon Williams, who of course is one of the iconic 19th, 20th century composers, English composers. And during, I think it was just during a weekend away with a friend, he became really fascinated by the symbolism that was captured in the medieval cosmos and the way that it was associated with kind of these moods, these ancient gods, and kind of what they symbolized in, in human nature. So he decided to put together a composition uh, that was based around this. However, rather than just going and doing something based on the seven heavens, he did it uh, kind of with a modern mindset of what we know of cosmology. So. We would have used to think of the seven heavens or the seven planets as involving the sun and the moon, as we would have discovered last week uh, with Dr. Ward. But Holst uh, says, well, they're not planets, so I'm not going to do that. So he takes out the sun and the moon, and he adds in two other planets that have recently been discovered. Pluto had not been discovered at this point. So he adds in Neptune and Uranus, and uh, which means he also adds in this own kind of mythology for them. Of course, Neptune and Uranus are still based off of uh, Greek gods, so he draws on that, but in really interesting ways that kind of re-enchant our understanding of even our modern cosmos. In some ways, I like to think that I think Holst was giving us what he would imagine to be the music of the spheres. You know, if we live on the silent planet, that because of our, our sin and our tendency towards death, we cannot hear the music of the spheres. I think that Holst was trying to give us a peek into the music of the spheres, of what each of these planets might represent symbolically and how that might sound and feel in the realm of music. So I'm going to start by playing you one of the most famous bits from this piece of music, which is Jupiter's song. And I want you to remember that Jupiter is the king planet. Um, Jupiter, or Jove, as he's sometimes called, was the king. He was the king of, of feasting, of triumph, of merriment, and of jollity. And I think you can really hear that in the music. So kind of listen with that in mind. This sounds kingly, that it sounds jolly, that it sounds like a celebration. So I hope that even with that clip, you can kind of get the um, mood that Holst was going for. If we think of Jove as the kingly planet, this song sounds like him charging around, um, throwing garlands at people and getting ready to celebrate how very kingly and jolly he is. And to me, that's kind of the, um, the success behind this piece of music is how well he manages to evoke the emotional content and, and of each one of these planets and their mythological roots. 
So he does this with all of the other planets. So if you remember a little bit from last week, we have Saturn, which sounds upsetting and disastrous and like it's all going to fall apart. We have Venus that's rich and beautiful because it's a representation of love and of romance and of fecundity. And he goes through all of them this way. So in the title of each piece, he names the planet and then he names what it is associated with mythologically. So you have Mars as the first one, the bringer of war, Venus, the bringer of peace, Mercury, the winged messenger, Jupiter, the bringer of jollity, Saturn, the bringer of old age. And then the ones that I find really fascinating are the last two, which is Uranus and Neptune. And Uranus is called the magician and Neptune is called the mystic. Now, what is so fascinating to me about this is that these are the two which are arguably the most representative of our modern understanding of cosmology because they are ones that were recently discovered. So Uranus, for instance, um, was not discovered until around 1781, which is relatively recent when you think about the history of the heavens and our knowledge of them. So these were kind of more recently discovered planets. So in a sense, you could think of them as kind of representing the scientific method, this new understanding of the cosmology. If anything, they would be less enchanted because they haven't been associated for so many millennia uh, with the mythical kind of stories behind them. But what's interesting to me is he gives these last two more modern planets, if you want to call them, although they're not modern, they've been around quite a long time. He gives these last two planets the most kind of magical enchanted names. Uranus is called the Magician and Neptune is called the Mystic. And what a mystical piece it is. So this is the last piece in the series. And it's fascinating because when he wrote it, so the other ones he had written with piano, but for this one, he wanted, he started by trying to compose it with an organ because he felt piano was too ordered and had too much of a sense of earthliness about it. And so he wanted to have the organ because it breathed. And I think it's interesting because my brother Joel, and perhaps I'll have to interview him and put this on the Patreon next week, has talked about the music in Interstellar which is certainly an example of a movie that kind of deals with the enchantedness of the possibilities of modern science in outer space. Uh, but it uses an organ because it wants to remind us that in space there is still breath, there is still this sense of wonder and of mythology and not just of emptiness. So he started by using organs, but ultimately found the only thing he could do was to use voices um, because it reminded him of the Song of the Spheres. And he intended this very last piece uh, actually to be placed off stage in an adjoining room, the door of which was to be left open until the very last bar when the instruments stop and only the voices are heard repeating the final two chords over and over again while the door is slowly closed. I think it is so significant that this is how Holst wanted to end his piece that was blending both the ancient and the modern. He saw the new discoveries that we have, and he was even on the cusp of it. Can you even imagine what kind of piece he would write now? He saw that not as a closing off of the universe, as a closing off of the meaning, but as an opening into a mystery that we couldn't even yet guess at. That it was the opening of a barely closed door behind which a song was singing. It seems that even in our modern accounts, we can't help but think that somewhere beyond our enclosed little area, the Song of the Spears, is still singing. So those beautiful segments that you heard were by the London Symphony Orchestra, and I will put in links to that um, to that recording in my blog post. Now, before I end this week, I have to send you on an assignment, which I kind of accidentally did yesterday as I was preparing for this podcast, which is that I listened through Holst's um, planets while looking at the images from the Hubble telescope. And if there is anything that could re-endow your sense of enchantment, of wonder, and of the mystery of the heavens, it would be combining these two things. And I think that is the conclusion that I have come to, is that yes, this change in our understanding of the cosmology may have given us less of a sense of security, but it certainly has not diminished our reason, our justification for wonder. 
and our justification for thinking that the material world is made up of much more than we could ever have possibly understood. And I so appreciate the work of artists who've done all they can to help us not just kind of give in to the pessimism of thinking that simply because science explains things, um, they're no longer wondrous or amazing. And even beyond uh, orchestral suites, there are also artists who have put this into practice in popular music. There is an artist, Sleeping at Last, who I really enjoy, uh, who did a whole series on this, also associating it with all of its mythological accounts. But then also, and finally, and more recently, an artist that I love dearly, Sufian Stevens, did a project that I want to end with today. I'll end with this song, Mercury, where he attempted to combine again what we know of modern cosmology with a sense of the wonder captured in the ancient mythologies associated with the heavens. The album is not perfect uh, overall. Uh, there are some weird bits. There are some bits that are so experimental that they're just not enjoyable. But there are some of the songs that are just absolutely transcendently beautiful. And I wanted to end today by sharing one of these with you. And that is Mercury. And this is the last song in the album. Now, if you'll remember last week, um, Spud was saying that in the old days, people were associated with planets, not exactly in, in an astrological sense, like it would predict your horoscope, but that people shared qualities um, with the certain heavens. And the qualities that I would share would be Mercury. Mercury is my planet. It is the planet of words, of scholarship, of swiftness, of changeability, and of travel. And this is where uh, Sufian ends the album, is with Mercury. And I think that similarly to Holst, he ends it here for a reason. This is a song that is full of changeability and swiftness. You can hear that in the music. It's also full of questions all throughout it. The lyrics come back again and again to the question, where do you run? Where do you run to? And I think that what Sufian is doing with this is that he wants to show us that as we gaze at the heavens, as we see their immensity and also their finitude, as we see their beauty and also their, their frightening aspects, there arises this question in us of kind of longing for a center, even though we may not understand the universe in the same sense um, as the Aristotelian first mover, we still have this impulse to think that there must be something somewhere that all of this beauty is running towards. And so I love that it ends with this question, where do you run to? Where do you run? Carry your friend, where do you run? So I want to end today as I began, saying that yes, we may have changed our understanding of cosmology, but that has not made the world that we live in seem any less wondrous. The world is not disenchanted. We have only grown disenchanted the way that we look at it. So I challenge you this week to go and stand beneath an immense canopy of stars, to ponder the words of the psalmist who wrote, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what are we that you are mindful of us? And perhaps that in all of that beauty, you would have the same question as Sufian, to wonder where does all of this beauty run towards and what message does it carry within it? That is the question that I will leave you all with. I look very forward to talking to you next week. Thank you for listening to Speaking with Joy. Here is Mercury by Sufian Stevens. Sorry, and all that I've known to be at peace, and I am desperate.
restless. 